afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Notre Dame Stadium. Zivikowski trying to get to the outside. He has blockers in front. Time for Zivikowski. Belong to beat. Shakes it off. To the five and touchdown. And now it is down. It is over. And the Irish have knocked off number one Clemson. Brady Quinn looking. Pump fakes. He rolls to the near side. Throws it. It's caught by Samaja. Inside the 20. Inside the 10. He's going in. Notre Dame has scored. Jones is the back. He's got it again. And Jones a letter room. Tony Jones makes a cut. Gets a block. And scores. Is that the play that will seal the playoff bid for Fighting Irish? What's going on? And welcome into the show. This is Sons of Saturday Irish. I'm Tyler Wojak. He's Luke Smith. And today... We're going to be joined by Matt Fortuna, a great friend of the program, to talk about his time in Vegas as well as his thoughts on this Notre Dame team and the young coaching staff based on what we've seen through five games. Um, Then we're going to get into our Stanford preview, and let me tell you right now, they stink. They absolutely stink. Like the Stephen A., the Lakers stink. The Lakers stink! But whenever Notre Dame plays Stanford, there always feels like there's a little bit more at stake, whether or not you want to call this a rivalry or not. These are two like-minded institutions. So we'll talk about the history of the game and then the game itself in the back half. But before we get going, please like and subscribe to the video below if you're watching on YouTube and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Side note, Luke, you listen to a lot of podcasts and I feel like wherever you get your podcast is sort of the default saying, but... What else do people use to listen to podcasts other than Apple and Spotify? Is there some stuff on SoundCloud? I don't like, know. I always think that people are just making it up. Uh, I, there is some weird thing that somebody brought up to me the other day, and I had to act like they were I knew what they were talking about, and I just didn't. But um, there's a bunch of weird stuff out there. Google. Google, too. Okay. Good point. Good point. All right. Well, if you listen to any of these other weird podcast platforms, uh, give us a follow and subscribe there as well. Let's uh, take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, and then we'll talk some ball with Matt Fortuna. The NFL action is in full swing at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. We're talking touchdowns, big plays, and even bigger wins. New customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. Check this out. In addition to the usual bets, everyone can boost their winnings with DraftKings stepped-up same-game parlays. All right, let's check in our picks from last week. Uh, it didn't go so well. We managed to go 0-2 this past Sunday. The Lions, uh, they got housed by the Pats, uh, so they didn't cover plus three, and, and the Eagles weren't able to cover minus five against the Cardinals either. Uh, hopefully our picks this week are a little bit better. We'll let you hear those on Thursday. But, yeah, this was not a great week. <laughs> Big bounce back week for us. Check us out on Thursday. Yeah, exactly. But to make things even sweeter, you can throw down on stepped-up same-game parlays once per game day all season long. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code SOS to get $200 in free bets if your team wins when you place a $5 bet on any football game. That's code SOS only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. This episode is sponsored by Haas Company, a lifestyle brand that's about being the best version of yourself. Be the Haas. The Haas lives life without reservations, without doubt, and ready to answer the call each and every day. Check out their website at bethehaas.com and use promo code SUNS for 15% off on your next order. Check them out. 
This episode is also supported by Roback. Shop game-changing activewear with Roback for those who crave activity. Use the promo code SUNSND, that's S-O-N-S-N-D, to get 20% off your next order in the entire store at Roback.com. But we encourage all of our listeners to check out the Shamrock Polo, which would look great on Irish fans everywhere. That's promo code SUNSND at R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. All right. Matt Fortuna joins us now. You know Matt. He's a national college football writer for The Athletic and the co-host of the Shamrock Podcast. But more importantly, he's a recurring guest over here with us at Sons of Saturday. Matt, thank you as always for your time. We really appreciate it. Well, let's cut right to the chase. Give us the full report from your weekend in Las Vegas. Oh, well, thanks for having me, guys. And, and I've got the T-shirt to prove, prove my uh, recurring guest status. So I'm very appreciative of that. always enjoy speaking with you guys. Vegas was fun, as you can imagine. Um wish I had some, like, good stories for you, but I really don't. I mean, got a nice dinner with uh, colleagues Pete Sampson, Tim O'Malley, who I'm sure you know well, probably been on the show. Uh, that was about it as far as Friday. I mean, Saturday I went right home and right to sleep after the game. I was – I'm an old man now. I can't uh, can't hang out like I used to, especially with that, that time adjustment. We were uh, – after dinner, I don't even know what time it was, probably not that late. Vegas time, but but Tim O'Malley says, you know, this is the time of the night where if this was like the NC State road trip or, or some run-of-the-mill road trip, we all call it a night and say, we're going to sleep. But because it was Vegas, we, we decided to, to to stay out a little bit later and, um, you know, we're probably still paying the price for that with our bodies. But it, it was fun. Uh, have some buddies out there, one of whom works uh, at Aria. So we, we hung out, watched NFL games on Sunday um, at the Sportsbook there. And I got to say, man, Notre Dame Nation really showed out. I mean, I, I, I had lunch near a sport book on Saturday, and it was like, holy cow. Like, I can barely even move around. It's so crowded. Whereas Sunday, I, I would have thought an NFL Sunday would have been every bit as crowded, and it was not even – you couldn't even compare the two. It was um, an awesome environment all the way around, pregame, in-game, uh, just Vegas. You know, my entire flight uh, um, Friday night heading out there from Chicago – all Notre Dame fans, married to a couple of Shamrock fans. It was uh, it was an awesome weekend. Pete said this. I'll echo him. Put every Shamrock series in Vegas from now on. I mean, the, between the uniforms, the performance, and the venue, it was a really special weekend. This is a purely hypothetical question, but one that came across in my mind uh, for you. Which Notre Dame coach that you've covered would you anticipate having the longest role at the craps table? And I'll give you four options here. I'll give you Chuck Martin, Mike Bray, Chip Long, or Brian Kelly. I'm shocked you didn't say Brian Van Gorder. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's a good option, too. (laughs) Out of those four, I'd go Bray. I mean, I don't – and this is pure, pure speculation and guesswork. Uh, on my part, but Bray, Bray and Chip Long, I think, would, would be the first who I would uh, point to there. I like it. Or Van Gorder as well. All right, let's talk about some football. <laughs> um, you had a piece on The Athletic this past week about Michael Mayer and his dominant performance against BYU. Where does he rank uh, among the best players you've covered at Notre Dame? He's right up there, man. He really is. You know, I put out a tweet kind of as a fun hypothetical when I saw him. Uh, doing a post-game NBC hit with Manti Teo, and I just said, are these the two best Notre Dame players of the last 11 years? And half them have, you know how it is, half the people say yes, and the other half tell me I'm a bleeping idiot. But, uh, you know, the only one I could definitively say uh, is in that conversation with those two would be Quinn and Nelson. Um, in fact, one of Quinn and Nelson's former Notre Dame coaches texted me after saying that, saying, uh, 
in a very vocal terms. He, he may or may not be someone <laughs> we just mentioned on this podcast earlier saying Quinn Nelson is it's the best one. But, um, you know, Jalen Smith, Kyle Hamlin, all great, great players, not taking anything away from them. I, I, watching those guys in college, I don't, and Jalen in particular, because of the scheme he was in, I mean, you look at that guy's career, you look at his talent, and you look up at the end of the day, and you're like, how do you just have one sack? You know what I mean? Like, he just was like, Brian Van Gorder set that defense back. So, didn't mean to mention him twice on the show, but he set that okay. defense back um, so far during his time there that, that you really didn't get the most out of, out of the talent on that roster. And Kyle Hamilton as well, only played three years, was hurt for the majority of the third. Um, obviously an incredible talent, but I, I would put Mayer right there with Quinn and Nelson and Manti Teo and, and Michael Floyd from a year earlier as far as um, impactful guys who, who I've covered in, I guess, 12 years now in some shape or form. The guy throwing Mayer the ball has been really impressive too, ever since a really rough first half against Cal. You were there for that game and wrote about him in the aftermath. Based on what you saw from Pine on that day and over the previous couple of years, did you have any idea that he would be able to improve as much as he has in such a short time? Not this quickly. You know, he um, it was a struggle for him. But, you know, the last two times out really at Notre Dame Stadium, you look at the Cal game and you look at the spring game where, you know, He's working with the ones and he's, you know, Tyler Buckner was out that game. So Tyler, Drew Pine just kind of went out there and, and did whatever he was told and, and wasn't probably entirely familiar with, you know, every single person he was playing with as far as a consistency standpoint. But what he's been able to do in the, in the couple of weeks since has truly been remarkable. Um, you know, statistically, I think Pete had said he's on pace to, to, to breathe, beat the Notre Dame single season completion record. And obviously there's a long season to go and, things will probably regress to the mean a little bit more, but he's looked really, really sharp. He has. And, and look, I, I thought this was a guy who um, worked his butt off, was well-respected uh, in the locker room, and, and who I, I didn't think would play bad. I really didn't. In fact, I was, I, I was surprised he played as poorly as he did in that first half against Cal. But ever since then, you know, coincidence or not, ever since Tommy Reese uh, told him to do his job in so many words, uh, things have, have really looked up for him. And, and he's not just been a game manager or a guy that Notre Dame has, has turned to at a moment of crisis. He, he's he's winning them games. I mean, some of the throws he made um, in that BYU game were, were, were really special. And I think he's changed the calculus on the outlook for this team this season. I think he's given them something to build off. I mean, I, I didn't think we would get to the point where Marcus Freeman is being asked this week, seriously, do you regret starting Tyler Buckner, you know, because of how well Drew Pines played? And, and uh, you know, Freeman said, no, I don't. Like, that was based off their performance at practice, and Buckner had earned it. And, and that's what, you know, everything – all indications are that's true. But um, I haven't seen a roster respond to a quarterback like this in quite some time. And, again, it's a very small sample size. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But it's been very, very impressive what he's been able to do so far. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned Tommy Reese and his role in everything. And he was really heavily criticized by fans after the first couple games. And and I would say that some of it was justified. But I think Luke and I both feel that most of it was a little bit over the top and unfair. But that's kind of what happens when you lose to Marshall. And we know how respected he is in coaching circles. I think you even said Sean McVay has a man crush on him, that quote that's been sort of (laughs) repurposed uh, ever since you said it. And, you know, I don't know what the exact phrasing was, but either way, that's high praise coming from one of the best, if not uh, the best offensive minds in football right now. So you're more plugged in than us. You you know, you talk to these coaches, you talk to people in the know. And based on the conversations that you've had, what are they most impressed by when it comes to Tommy Reese? 
I think, uh, well, I think if you just look at the response of the players and you talk to the players on the roster and you hear some of the stories, I think it's a relationship he de- develops with his quarterbacks. I mean, look, that, that, that clip of him yelling at, at Drew Pine at the Cal game went viral and understandably so. It was a, I mean, we saw it happen with Ken Dorsey a week later, right? He's still kind of not living that down. And he, all he did was throw like a phone or something. He didn't even yell at anyone. But um, I, I think the response to that from Drew Pine, both publicly as far as him saying, yeah, it's cool, and how he's performed since, which obviously has been uh, very positive, that to me says so much more about what happens Monday through Friday than it does on those you know quick viral clips that happened on Saturday. And again, I understand why that was a big deal, especially in the heat of the moment when they're 0-2 and they look like they could be going 0-3 with the backup quarterback. I get that. But the response to that, you don't respond that way. You don't play that well after a coach does that to you unless you've got a lot in the bank with him and he's got a lot in the bank with you. And I, I think that goes both ways. I think Tommy Reese has done a tremendous job of just really, you know, getting the most out of his quarterbacks and, and, and being on the same page with them where they have that trust, where they can have those honest and, and sometimes colorful and public conversations that aren't always pretty, but, but are necessary to, to get people to do their jobs, for lack of a better term. Uh, but, but, you know, he's, he's certainly very well thought of um, in NFL circles. You know, he, he's a sponge, to, to borrow a football term. Uh, he's a guy who, who just has an incredible breadth of understanding and knowledge of the game. Um, and that, that goes back to when he was a player. I mean, I remember I did a story on him when he – um, you know, it was, when, we, when he was a player, we knew he was going to be a coach. He was pretty open about that with us, you know, even as a 19, 20-year-old kid. Uh, but I did a story on him when he got promoted to OC at Notre Dame, talking to some of the quarterbacks that worked with him. And they were just like, we were doing basic math and he was doing trig as, as, a, as a freshman. It was like, we thought we knew stuff and we didn't. And I think it was Joe Schmidt who had said, um, it was Joe, I, I think it was Joe Schmidt, someone I'd spoken to for one of those stories had said, you know, when, when Tommy was a junior senior, there was a group that would, you know, sit at the same dinner table every night on the road. And, and Tommy would essentially predict and, and play out the next day's game, how it would go, you know, to, down to the final score. And they said more often than not, like he, he just he nailed it out of the park. Like he he just has a natural kind of football mind and a gravitation toward the game that even amongst most coaches, I don't think is is all that common and he's open about that i mean in the preseason he uh talked about how much fun he had just going through nfl tape and college tape all season long during his free time and even he stopped himself saying well that might not sound fun to most people but it's fun for me because that's what i like to do so uh that's where i think a lot of the the praise comes from now look uh i i I didn't coach i didn't play i'm very rarely going to be the guy to, to, to really get on someone for play calling unless it's you know you're calling a run on fourth and seven or something egregious. Uh, but, but I do think, you know, the criticism that, that is probably earned is basically how does this quarterback room and the situation is right now for all the good things we just said about Drew Pine, you know, if he gets hurt tomorrow, like the guy in front of him did, you know, what the hell, like Steve Angeli and that's it. And that should never happen at a place like Notre Dame. Uh, there should never be just down to two healthy scholarship bodies at any point in the season uh, they should never be down to two healthy scholarship bodies who, you know, until two weeks ago were completely unproven. Um, not in this era with the transfer portal, not when you have to offer what Notre Dame has to offer right now, not when you have a head coach right now who's very active on the recruiting trail and who has attracted prospects uh, both from the high school level and other schools who, who want to play for him. So I, th- I thought that was inexcusable. And 
hopefully for Notre Dame's sake, it won't come back to bite them here in the next couple of weeks. But it's still a pretty precarious situation they're in right now uh, throughout the rest of the year in that room. Defensively, it's been an up and down year so far under Al Golden. They've held each of their opponents to at least a touchdown below their scoring average, but they've also given up some inexplicable chunk plays in just about every game that make you question everything. Uh, what's your perception <laughs> of the defense up to this point? Yeah, I think you put it pretty nicely there, whether it was the, the, the blitz that gave up the touchdown with the backup nickel back in against Ohio State, which I understood the logic of the call, even if I didn't like it. And even if it blew up in their face, uh, some of the big plays, particularly the, the third and 18 run that kept BYU alive uh, late in the game Saturday night. And of course, the long touchdown pass as well. It, it, it's been OK. You know, I, I don't think they've played to their potential. I don't think they've played. Um, I wouldn't say they've played great. They've been good. I mean, look, the, the body of work when you come out of Columbus and you see what Ohio State has been able to do since then. Holding that team to 21 points is pretty damn special. I don't care what kind of night it was. I don't care how much ball control you were trying to play uh, on your own offensively. That That's an impressive performance. But uh, the, the thing that, that's disappointed me, and I know, you know there are a lot of people out there that will say this is a matter of luck, and I think there's some truth to that. But to have just two forced turnovers um, through five games so far is really disappointing. I mean, that, that's one of the worst marks in the country right now. Clarence Lewis just has not played all that well. He dropped a surefire pick six, and we could probably point to a number of plays like that, whether it was the Cal game, uh, well, obviously in the Cal game, that last drive alone, they had a couple takeaways that, that ended up getting brought back. But, you know, a couple of those games where uh, this thing should have been over even before Cal or BYU even had a chance to come back in the fourth quarter. And so, look, they went through something similar last year. I mean, it's very easy to forget the defense damn near blew it against Toledo, damn near blew it against Florida State. Um, and the Marcus Freeman hype train, as far as him as a defense coordinator, considerably slowed down until they really picked things up midseason. Uh, but but I, I would say it's been fine so far. Not, nothing to, to, to go crazy about, good or bad. I think the best is still ahead of them. But, uh, you know, I, they've definitely missed some opportunities to, to make some big plays defensively so far. Yeah, I, I think all that's true. And on that note, looking ahead to the rest of the season, we got to put you on the spot here. Uh, a couple weeks ago, you did predict Notre Dame would finish seven to five with losses to Clemson and USC, which you know I get, um, and Syracuse too, which I have some questions about. But uh, they're a good team; they're ranked, and that's at the place formerly known as the Carrier Dome. Did last Saturday's result change your mind at all about the future of this team and how they'll finish the rest of the way? Uh, yeah, I won't back off my prediction because, like, that would be kind of weak to do that after one game. Yeah. But certainly. I feel much more bullish on this program after the BYU game than I did going into it. Um, on top of that, I don't know if you listened to the show we had with Tim Murray last week, but he had uh, one of his guys at Circa uh, mock up lines, and he said Notre Dame would be favored over Clemson right now, which blew my mind. And, and which yeah, maybe, I couldn't believe that at it, all. I had to do it. Like, indir- yeah. Right? Like, I, indirectly, I'm like, maybe Notre Dame's a lot better than I thought they were after hearing that. But then you see Clemson's only a three-and-a-half-point favorite at Florida State, which doesn't seem to make sense this week either. And obviously Vegas sees Clemson in different eyes than, than the public does. But uh, I, I thought BYU was a bit of a swing game. Like, I, I predicted them to win going in. I think the way they won w- was really impressive. I think uh, the way they, they're they starting to look like the football team that we thought they'd be in preseason, uh, running the ball, stopping the run. And right now, again, good quarterback play. I, I think changes the forecast on this team a little bit. I do. I think Drew Pine's feeling better, better, quicker than a lot of us had any reason to, to think he would be based on uh, that early sample size. And, and so I'm definitely more optimistic about this team, uh, not just because of um, 
what Vegas says, but like I, I, whereas maybe a week ago I thought Clemson was, you know, let's just not get blown out. Now I'm thinking, yeah, they, they, they got a chance to win that one um, going into it. If they keep this up, if they stay healthy at the quarterback position, um, I, I, I think it's, you know, to hear Michael Mayer post game basically say like, we're playing ball the way we want to play. Like we're stacking the wins we're, we're we put the first two weeks behind us. That to me was the mark of a, a mature football team that's rowing the boat in the right direction. Because when you start 0 two with the new coach, when you lose to freaking Marshall, who hasn't looked all that great since then, everyone wrote them off and understandably so. And it would be very easy for people in those walls to, to throw in the towel in the season, go get theirs, get through this and say, I'm not going to be like, this is a transition year. I didn't sign up for this. I'm going to go get mine. And that hasn't happened so far. Michael Mayer, first and foremost, probably the, the well, easily the best player on the team. I think it's set a good example for, for how to go about your business day in and day out. Uh, Drew Pine, the quarterback, is one of the hardest workers on the team. And I just, you know, we, we talk a lot about the culture and, and the vibes around Marcus Freeman. All of that is trending in the right direction after this little three-game winning streak here. And it, it definitely makes me more optimistic about the, the state of things in this season. With that said, uh, how would you grade Marcus Freeman's first five games as a head coach with this staff, so not counting the Fiesta Bowl? And, and has your outlook on his future changed at all from the last time we spoke, which I believe was right after he was first hired? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to give him anything, but if we're going like the letter system, when you lose a Marshall when you're only three and two, it's hard to go any higher than like C plus or B minus for these first five games. Now, uh, yeah, it's like the age-old question, who's the best team in the country? Well, who's going to win it all or who's the best team right now? Kind of like, you know, Heisman Strapples. Um, So, I, you know, I, you got to knock him for the Marshall loss. I don't care if he's a first-year first head coach or not. But long-term, my, my, my outlook on him and this program has not changed. Uh, now, if the recruiting class completely falls apart in the next two months here, maybe we, we can have that conversation again in December and it'll be a little bit different. But, you know, I think, you know, there, there was a – there was a risk in hiring a first-year head coach who was only 36 years old. This was part of that risk. Um, and, and to, you know, stand behind him and to still believe in him means weathering the storm. And sometimes that means losing a Marshall and starting 0-2. Sometimes that means almost losing a Cal uh, and having a backup quarterback who for most of that game didn't look like he knew what he was doing. So um, I think it's part of it. It's a little more rocky of a ride. Uh Mike Golick Jr. had come on our show after the Ohio State game, and uh, this was before the Bears-Packers week, or excuse me, Bears-49ers week one game. And he said, this isn't a perfect analogy, but it reminds me of, uh, he goes, going from Brian Kelly to Marcus Freeman reminds me of 49ers going from Jimmy G to, to Trey Lance. Like, you know what you're getting, Jimmy G, it's pretty damn good. You know you're not going to be bad, but you're, you're, you're basically lowering the floor to increase the possibility of a higher ceiling. And that same weekend, Notre Dame lost to Marshall, and Trey Lance got outperformed by Justin Fields at Soldier Field. And I said, Mike, you were more right than you ever intended to be with that analogy. But um, I, I do think there's a lot of truth in that. And I do think, look, because it's his first year, because he's already got two two losses under his belt, you know, if, if Stanford pulls one out of there, you know what, this week, we could have an entirely different conversation about this a week from now. And look, that's entirely possible because, again, when you lose at home to Marshall, as a 20-point favorite, all bets are off in every game moving forward. But if they were to finish 9-3 and three here, if they were to beat Clemson or USC, I mean, look, no one wants to hear this. No one goes into the season saying, oh, I hope we go 9-3 and three, or I hope we only win one of these big games. But if they were able to do that in light of the way they started, 
in some ways that might make me even more optimistic about the long-term outlook of this program under Freeman um, than I did otherwise, because uh, again, it's easy to, to pull the plug and, and give up emotionally on a first year head coach who started off the way he did. And this team has not done that so far. Yeah, I think all that is fair, especially the note, note about Marshall. It's not like they've been a, a wagon ever since that game. I think they lost to Troy the, the next week. So they not play tonight. We got we to get off the show and watch them play, I think, Louisiana, <laughs> Wednesday Night Football. There we go. All right, so we just got a couple more questions here before we let you go. Uh, looking beyond this season, personally, I'll be very interested to see how Marcus Freeman approaches the offseason now that he's got a full season under his belt and he's not going to be a brand new hire anymore. So presumably he's going to have a lot more time to focus on improving the team, whether that be you know way of recruiting or the transfer portal. And you've certainly alluded to some issues with the transfer portal and the school and how you know that process works and, and NIL as well, all in the same vein right there. So do you get any sense that Freeman will be more active in the portal and more aggressive with NIL after this season uh, now that he's got some experience in the role? I think he will be. Like, I think the, the yes, no answer to that question is yes. I think even when he was asked about um, the portal and quarterbacks a few weeks ago, midweek, he basically said, yeah, it's something we're going to have to like explore in the off season. I don't know how you don't do that, at least portal wise. Um, again, like, you know, who knows how Drew Pine finishes this season? Who knows what the health of Tyler Buckner will be moving forward? But I still think you need to add bodies to that room. Obviously, you know, if CJ Carr decides to enroll early, that changes the calculus of that room a little bit. But you still need to be, I think, um, proactive. And I don't think you can just say, we've got our guys, we're set. Because as we saw with Tyler Buckner, you know, you're always one play away from being out for the year. And that, that, that puts you at a really tough spot. Um, as far as NIL, actually, let me go back to Porter real quick. I think the fact that they got Brandon Joseph into school when they did, and there was a lot of legwork that had to go into that from both the football office, um, the academic office. Um, and, and in his specific case, I know it's simple to say, well, he's a Northwestern uh, student. Obviously, he'll be good enough to get into Notre Dame. Well, because Northwestern's on the quarter system and Notre Dame's on the semester system, that complicated things even more than they needed to be when he decided to transfer, but Marcus Freeman was able to get people from the academic side, basically off winter break, off their vacation to get on campus and get that done. And I think that's something you, you, it's positive when you have a willingness to do that, uh, especially as a first year head coach. I mean, if you've been there 10 or so years, I can see why you're kind of over it at that point and think this is just the way things are. And I'm tired of fighting these battles, but I think with a young coach who, has done everything right off the field, everything right around the campus in his first year to break bread and, and make good with everyone. Um, I think that goes a long way, and I think that will pay dividends specific to the transfer uh, issue moving forward. NIL is a tricky one because I just – I mean, I know there – you know, Brady Quinn's got his thing out there, which is good. There are a few others that seem promising. But, like, every feedback I get whenever I talk to people in this space is just like, yeah, Notre Dame's administration just seems – woefully like either ignorant or just uninterested in, in getting involved with this in any way. And I just don't think you can operate that way long-term if you want to actually compete for a national championship. I mean, it seems like every other weekend now you're seeing like school sanctioned NIL um, collectives happening on campus. I mean, I'm not, you know, Notre Dame's on the SEC. They're never going to operate like an SEC team, but like Ole Miss had a huge, Huge uh, rollout the Friday before the Kentucky game on campus. It was a big deal. You've seen other schools do similar stuff. And, you know, 
this is trial by fire. Some of this is going to work, some isn't. But I think to, to completely stiff arm the idea of stepping into this brave new world, I don't know. I mean, I think you're seeing with recruits right now, some of the, you know, the, the higher ended recruits that had initially committed to Notre Dame. From my understanding, that's a bargaining chip. Yeah, we'll commit to you now. Hey, Alabama, we can go to Notre Dame if you don't up your price right now. What are you going to do for us? And I, I think Marcus Freeman understands that. I think he's smart enough to to put together a plan to figure that out. But I think it's going to take a change in mindset from people at the highest levels of university to, to truly embrace and come around to what college football is in 2022. Last question here. Um, we barely even talked about Stanford, and, and I think that that shows just how far that program has fallen. I know it's a different place, but is there a chance Saturday night is the last time we see David Shaw as the head coach for the Cardinal? Oh, yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm speaking to you from Chicago right now, and I, I would compare his situation very similarly to Pat Fitzgerald right now at Northwestern, just as far as like what happened. You guys seem to have, in some ways, the best jobs in America, and you had them winning nine, ten games a year. I don't think so for either of those guys that, that I mentioned. Um, again, both are alums. Both are still highly supported and respected in the corners that matter most um, in those buildings. Um, I wish I'm not around Stanford as much as I'm at Northwestern. So I wish I, I could have like a legitimate answer explanation for you as to why they have fallen off so hard because what they did under Jim Harbaugh in the first five or six years, of the David Shaw era, in my opinion, was as impressive as anything we'd seen in college football in that time span. I mean, this was a program that became dominant. It was a program that Notre Dame openly mentioned as like, yeah, we're trying to be that, which you rarely hear, right? Like, no one ever says that, but Notre Dame said it, and they meant it. And you know what? Notre Dame caught Stanford and has lapped them since then. Um, I don't think this is the last time we see David Shaw, even at Notre Dame Stadium. I think he's too – and a guy I don't know him personally. This is pure speculation on my, on my end, but – I, I think he's too prideful. I think he cares about the place too much. I think he's proven in the past he knows what he's doing, and he's going to at least try to make the necessary changes or adjustments to try to figure things out. But certainly it's been rough for them the last couple of years. Um, you know, I think they play – lately they've been good for one or two really good ga- surprise games and upsets a year. We saw that last year when they beat Oregon, like when they basically got Clay Heldon fired by um, stopping USC. I think that game was last week against Oregon State, and they ended up losing it on a pretty bonkers play at the end. And I just don't know how you emotionally come back from that going into Notre Dame this weekend. Yeah, I know. When I when Luke asked that question to me, I was like, there's no way. And then, you know, you think about Paul Chris getting canned by Wisconsin. Right, right. No, that's Anything's that's possible now. Um, but, Matt, thank you so much for the time. Be sure to check out his work on The Athletic and subscribe to The Shamrock uh, to stay up to date on all of his coverage. And uh, this has been really fun. Thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Always a pleasure, guys. I'm not driving for those watching. I'm parked. I'm by myself. I would never do such a thing. But thanks for having me on. I had a great time talking with you guys. All right. That was Matt Fortuna from The Athletic. Uh, Thought that was a really interesting conversation. I had some highlights, some lowlights. More specifically, his discussion around Notre Dame and their relative inactivity surrounding NIL. That wasn't exactly promising to hear. Uh, I don't know what you thought about that. All in all, really good conversation. Yeah, I thought overall he was great. I thought he had some good insight onto the team and specifically Tommy Reese and the relationship he has with his players. Um, but you're right. I, I wish we had more time. Matt had a, just a couple more minutes to go. I had like five more follow-ups to that question. But it is interesting what he said about NIL and specifically Notre Dame's 
Um, I guess the administration's reluctance to get super involved with that, this has been something that's been said on message boards, and we've got inklings of it in the past, but I feel like if he's going to go on record and say, yeah, Notre Dame is just not being active, or at least not nearly where they should be, uh, that's certainly a concern, at least in my book. Yeah, um, and it's actually not all that surprising to me, just because of knowing the place and what it is, um, they've always kind of been reticent to, to change, at least change that that might not appear that um, – I, I don't know what the word I'm looking for. that They're, they're risk-averse. Uh, this is something that could very well blow up in a lot of schools' faces, and Notre Dame is a little bit conservative when it comes to that, which I can respect, but um, if it kind of kicks you behind the eight ball, then it becomes a problem. Yeah, it definitely could become a problem. I wouldn't say that it is right now. I mean, you look at Notre Dame's recruiting class mm-hmm. where it stands, it's top five, but uh, or at least around there. And But that's that's not what Notre Dame football is trying to do. They're trying to win national championships. And in order to do that, you got to be like the top one, two, or three. And, and in order to do that, you're just going to have to shell out some money, whether it be to, to recruits or current players. So I don't know. I feel like on one hand, yeah, Notre Dame is definitely risk averse. I feel like another part of it, in this is frustrating to me as a fan, is that Notre Dame as an institution, their reluctance to just say they're going all in on football. You know what I mean? Like, there's always some weird caveat. Like when they built that new, uh, the new indoor facility, when they came out with the press release, it doesn't mention football once, or maybe it does in one single sentence. They sort of pass it off as like, oh, this is going to be for all the students, the intramurals, other teams, and all that. But, like, it's a football facility. That's why it was built. That's why Brian Kelly spearheaded it. So I think it's just another example of that. And honestly, it's just really frustrating. And I don't get why we're still doing this. It's like we're running around in circles. Well, I think that is what they truly believe, though. And they think they can't go all in on football. So that's why they position it as such. Or you can call it posturing, whatever. That's what they truly believe, and that's how they want to be presented. Because they they have accepted that they are not going to go all in on football, despite what some people might want them to do. Yeah, and I don't want this to take away from the rest of the interview because there's plenty of great stuff we could get from that. We're going to obviously <laughs> talk about the team, but it was something uh, interesting, and it's going to be something that will follow um, you know, as the rest of the season goes along as Notre Dame finishes this 2023 recruiting class. Right now, it's still in great shape. Uh, looks like it could improve again soon, but this is just going to be a lingering thing, and uh, it is what it is. But as for the game... Notre Dame hosts Stanford this upcoming Saturday. It's a night game. We said on the the last show we have no clue why it's a night game. I wish I wish they could just flex it because it it shouldn't be. But I guess the one benefit in it being at night is that now I can watch Alabama Tennessee in full, um, and then get into the Notre Dame game. So one benefit. Uh, Vegas is Notre Dame is a seventeen point favorite right now according to DraftKings. The over under is fifty three and a half. So they're predicting something around the a 35-17 Notre Dame win. But Luke, as we're a couple of days away here, what's your general feeling about this game going into it? I'm hopeful it's David Shaw's last game as Stanford head coach. Uh, actually, I don't know if I should be hopeful because it's been pretty fun beating up on him the last several years, and he's he is so stubborn that it, he refuses to make various staff changes and just continues to go down deeper and deeper into me- not even mediocrity, <laughs> just poverty. Um, so maybe I should want him to be fired because it's fun to do that. And I've always kind of found him to be a stubborn piece of, you know what, uh, he's always had excuses. He's always whined, but it would be a very awesome way to send him off with his, you know, tail between his legs. If we just pounded them on Saturday night, other than that, there's not a whole lot to get excited about as far as this game goes, but 
while it's probably a small potential, I think if I talk about it enough, I can speak it into existence and, and it might happen. Yeah, I mean, you did just ask it to Matt. We talked about it. He didn't seem <laughs> like he thought it was going to be the last game, but he certainly admitted how bad it's been. Uh, should we talk about his comments today? Oh, you mean when he was uh, the, the guy who has lost 12 of his last 13 games was trying to claim that Stanford may have scored a touchdown uh, in overtime 10 years ago? Yeah, that, those are the ones I'm talking about. <laughs> and, and when he pulled a, many people are saying that he was actually in the end zone uh, from the truck of that game, which, people by the way, sought him out. wasn't in. He had a bunch of comments about how there were mixed crews working that game. That's not allowed to happen. The other thing is, like, he made it sound like if they had scored there, they would have won the game. They still would have had to kick an extra point to tie the game, too. Like, that was, yeah. it, we were up rain. seven at that point. Uh he whined about it then. He's still whining about it now. Helps to explain why they've just been so bad the last few years. I remember when we beat them in 2014, too. He was complaining about the band playing too loud. He's just – he's a very sore loser. There's no two ways about it, which is not something you often say about a grown man, especially because it's a toddler-like tantrum that comes out from that. But that's who David Shaw is. And Listen, he lost his strength coach in 2019, and they've been dog shit ever since, and they have continued to. Uh, they lost the infrastructure of their program, and who wants to go to Stanford anymore I, Like as a football well, player? I was going to say, like, as a regular student, I would go to Stanford. I don't know about that. It's a weird place. Have you been there? Yep, way back when. Dude, if you could go to Stanford and get into the school, you're you're going. Like, if for... Grad school or something like that, dude? Grad school is different. Undergrad, I don't know that it's a great experience. I think it's kind of weird. All right. If you're unfamiliar, basically today, I pulled up the quote just now. David Shaw, I guess he was asked if Stephon Taylor actually scored a touchdown against uh, Notre Dame in overtime in 2012, the famous goal line stand. Um, Basically said, the statute of limitations have passed where I feel like I can speak freely about this. I feel like I've had multiple conversations with multiple people over the years, some people I haven't sought out. They sought me out, uh, including some of the guys who were working in the truck, working in the van during that. Uh, look at those. They insisted I didn't even push. They insisted that Stefan was in. Um, it sounds like bullshit to me, if we're being honest. Oh, end quote, by the way. It seems like bullshit to me. <laughs> uh, the fact that we're still talking about this, but I have to give you credit. You were early on this in the David Shaw thing. When you first voiced your extreme displeasure with David Shaw, I thought it was random. I just thought, I don't know. He's just sort of, I'm just, I was just indifferent to him, but you had very strong opinions then, and you've actually been proven for the most part to be right about him. Yeah, he's just a bitch. I mean, there's there's no two ways about it. I, I can't be any nicer. I've I've actually been pretty nice in mincing my words, but he's just a bitch. There you go. We're 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 cracking through. So yeah, this this could be his last game as the head coach of Stanford. Slim chance, but yeah. Hey, if we talk about it enough, it could happen. I'm pretty sure I said to you, when is Paul Chris going to get fired after they lost to Illinois? Twelve hours later, he was canned. So I, I keep speaking these firings into existence. Yeah, like a month ago, if you had asked me, is David Shaw going to get fired midseason? I'd say, hell no, it's Stanford. What are they going to do? But then Wisconsin fired one of their own and Paul Chris. And I, I thought that move was firing Paul Chris, the justification they had in doing that compared to firing David Shaw. It's not even close. Like what David Shaw has been and what the Stanford. He's lost 12 of his last 13 games. That's, yeah. I mean, that's and what was egregious. The, and what was the stat you were telling me before about his overall win and loss record at Stanford? 
it's actually, I mean, it's pretty good. It's 94 and 49, but that means he was 93 and 37 uh, prior to the Oregon win that they had, which is, or I'm sorry, after the Oregon yeah. win that they had. Uh, because that since they beat Oregon, they have gone 1 and 12, and that only win is against Colgate. So Yeah, and things were going bad before that. Oh yeah, they were, they were really, I mean, they were awful in 2019. Uh, I don't even know what they were in the COVID year, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, um, the whole Pac-12. And what, last year they went 2-10? Yeah. and 10? So yeah, it's not been good. So the last time that Notre Dame hosted Sanford was back in 2018 because they, they didn't play uh, in 2020, obviously, during the COVID year because Notre Dame played an ACC-only schedule. They had Bryce Love on that Stanford team. They were Yeah, it was a top-10 matchup, and then Notre Dame won 38-17. to Stanford fell off the rails. And yeah, ever since then, they have just not been the same. This is technically a rivalry game. Notre Dame is playing for the Legends Trophy, but Stanford has just completely fallen off the map from what they used to be. But this game, there's a lot of great memories from this game. Uh, a couple classics I can think of right off the bat. The 2018 game, even though the score wasn't that close, it was a top 10 matchup at home. Big deal. Notre Dame wins that one. 2014 game was awesome. 2012 goal line, Sam, we've already talked about it. So when you think about this game and this rivalry and the history behind it, what is the one game or one moment that sticks out to you above the rest? I think all three of those that you mentioned obviously like stand out for their own reasons. Uh, 2012 and 2018 probably live a little bit better just because of how 20, the 2014 season went. But I'm actually going to throw out even another one here. Um, 2005, Notre Dame's trying to clinch a BCS Bowl, and they're playing a kind of middling Stanford team, but they're really struggling, and it required a late touchdown drive spearheaded by Darius Walker to beat them at the farm in 2005. So I'll throw that one out there as well. Yeah, um, but since Jim Harbaugh took over, really, it had been really good. And I think Notre Dame, since Jim Harbaugh has taken over, I don't know if they have a losing record in this series, but it's close to it. So it's... Acknowledge it or not, they've been a rival. It's who Brian Kelly said Notre Dame was striving to be uh, in 2010 when Andrew Luck and Stanford came to South Bend and pulverized Notre Dame. And Notre Dame has matched that and then some. And In fact, Stanford has fallen off quite a bit, as Matt mentioned in that interview. So regardless of whether you want to acknowledge it or not, I think there's no doubt in my mind that at least during our lifetime, while it might not have the historical significance, they've been a rival. No doubt. Um, yeah, it might not be as much now, but I, I think that when you look at our right, our lifetimes and, and what we've seen from the two programs, there's not a school that more closely mirrors Notre Dame from an academic sense and also as a football team. Um, and I think that's what made that 2012 game so special is that Brian Kelly went on record and saying, yeah, that's the program we need to be. It's rare for a head coach to say that and be upfront uh, about that in the, to the media, but he was right. And Notre Dame certainly has embodied that in the time since. And it's, it's interesting to me now because in, in this age of like conference expansion and all that, uh, there's been some rumors that if Notre Dame were to join the Big Ten, they would, they would have to do it with a partner to maintain an even number. And despite the fact that they are not geographically close at all, the hypothetical partner in this future situation, a lot of the rumors seem to be Stanford. So there's obviously a close-knit history with these two teams. It's going to continue in the future. Uh, and it, yeah, it makes for an interesting matchup on Saturday, even if the game itself isn't going to be all that interesting. Right. Yeah. I, I don't really know what that game's going to look like other than that. I keep speaking that it should be a blowout, but there's a lot, there's, there's been a lot there over the years. One last historical thing. This is a total sidebar. Uh, when you were at Notre Dame, did they ever make you learn about like the history of the school and specifically the group of French priests who came over to sort of start it from the very beginning? 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure I took a course that was specifically called God Country Notre Dame. So yes. So did you ever look at like the original journal entries from them and the letters that they sent back to Soren? You mean the the stuff that they have up in the archives in the library? Yeah. Yeah. Because if I'm not mistaken, the initial plan for those priests when they came over to the States was to go to California because this was post-Gold Rush. Mm -hmm. And they Mm -hmm. said, go establish... Uh, the premier Catholic university in the United States of America in California. They did not realize just how big the United States was. And it's so funny, if you go back and you read these letters, they they get they land on the East Coast, they start making their way west, and then they get to Indiana, and obviously, you know, they're doing this on foot and by horse and carriage. So it's it's taking some time to get from the East Coast to Indiana. They get snowed in, a bunch of them got diseases. It's not a great time for this group. And they're basically like, that we're sounds snowed like in. Just going, that sounds like going to college in South Bend in Yeah, general. exactly. You get no. a bunch of diseases and it's not a great time. <laughs> but the funniest part is they sent the letter back. And you got to imagine it takes however, like weeks probably for this letter to make it back to the recipient. And they're like, hey, we're snowed in. We're all sick. There's a couple lakes here. Fuck it. We're doing it here. And, that, and that's how Notre Dame was started. And uh, it's funny to think that had things gone to plan – that Notre Dame would probably be in Palo Alto because that was the original plan. Yeah, that is crazy. That's definitely an interesting take on what could have been in history. Yep, but here we are in South Bend. Uh, Let's get to the actual game on Saturday. Luke, they suck on both sides of the ball. You were doing some research on the offense. What could you find? It hasn't been pretty. Um, (laughs) You know, Emmett Smith's son, EJ, was expected to give them a lift at running back, but he's out for the rest of the season. They'll also be missing their starting left side of the offensive line in this one, which this is an offensive line that has not been good to begin with. Um, They're beaten up now, but they haven't been good in pass protection at all. They're coming in at 123rd in sack rate and 117th in sacks allowed per game. That's not very good. That, That said, people do like the quarterback, Tanner McKee. I know we did an exercise earlier this summer when we looked at five-star or top quarterback recruits from the last five or six cycles and and say whether or not they'd hit. I think you and I were split on this. I said he was a bust, um, and you said that he kind of hit. I know a lot of pro people like him too, but they also like Will Levis, and that hasn't worked out that well this year either. Um, So I I don't really – he's okay. Uh, This year he's been a 63% passer and has thrown for over 1,200 yards with 10 touchdowns and five picks. Unfortunately for him, three of those touchdowns came in the opening win against Colgate, so it hasn't exactly been smooth sailing against you know non-FCS competition. Yeah, I would say one thing about Tanner is it's hard to judge him on this scale because his team around him is just so bad. He has no playmakers. So like trying to imagine what Tanner McKee would be like on Notre Dame even or you know any decent to above average team, I would think that he'd be a lot better. So it's difficult to tell, but you would think that even if on a bad team, that if a quarterback like Tanner McKee, where I've seen some projections like as high as the first round, that might have more to do with the current quarterback class. But if he's going to be drafted that high, I would hope that he's able to lift his team a little bit more than what he's been able to do at Stanford. I, I, that's sort of the way I look at him. It's pretty much exactly like his predecessor, Davis Mills, who people still talk highly of for the Texans, even though the Texans blow 
So I don't know why people think he's a great court. He lost to the Bears, and somehow <laughs> he was the one that people were talking about after that game. So and he and he threw a brutal pick to Roquan Smith to seal that game too. So he's I think they're kind of the same player, uh, and they just haven't had a ton of success at the collegiate level. I'm sure he'll get drafted, and and hell maybe he'll be a starter just like Davis Mills. But for the Bears, I haven't. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Anyways, uh, getting away from that. In terms of their weapons in the past game. They have two guys, Michael Wilson and, and Bryson Tremaine, who are really the main targets. Uh, ben Urasek is the tight end. He actually was maybe the only guy for Stanford that had a halfway decent game last year. Um, so we got to look out for him. Like I said, beating up offensive line. I feel like I've said this every week this year, and it's only rung true really against Cal. But Notre Dame should have an advantage with their defensive line against this offensive line. We'll see what happens. Yeah, from the Notre Dame perspective, I just don't want to see any more big chunk plays, or at least can we limit them? Because uh, say what you will about uh, McKee, but he is capable of throwing it downfield. And in all the instances where Notre Dame has given up these big pass plays, it doesn't look like the corners are just, well, I shouldn't say that, because Clarence Lewis definitely got beat on that one fly route against North Carolina. But a lot of the times it just busted coverages, and the wide receiver is just so wide open. So I don't know. I'd like to see that from Notre Dame. If there's one thing, from Notre Dame's defense on Saturday that you'd like to see going up against them, what would it be? Pressure. just And don't let up any big plays because there just hasn't been enough of that. And I, there haven't been enough. There have been too many busts and big plays allowed. There haven't been enough big plays created. So yeah. let's do the inverse of that. Yeah, good call. Uh, it's not much better defensively for Stanford. Hell, it actually might be worse. Uh, they're horrible. They've given up on average 38.5 points a game. That's 122nd out of 131 teams in the country. They give up seven yards of play. That's 125th in the country. And if you look back to what Notre Dame did last year, they really tried to attack the Sanford defense through the air, and they did so very effectively. Jack Cohen had one of his best games in a Notre Dame uniform against Stanford. Uh, he threw for 345 yards and two touchdowns. Kevin Austin and Michael Mayer both eclipsed uh, 100 receiving yards in that one. When I was looking at those stats, it, honestly, I, I started to think about it. Like, what if Kevin Austin didn't have that game? Would his stock would have been so high? Would have even left? That's a, a a domino effect that I don't know if I well, want to go down. Well, I mean, was his stock really that high? He went undrafted. That's a good, <laughs> that's a good point. Well, maybe he would have stayed. I don't know. Either way, um, I could see Notre Dame going with a similar strategy just to help Pine build up more confidence like he has in the past few weeks against North Carolina and BYU. But – I actually don't think that's going to be the case because as bad as Stanford is through the air uh, and they're bad, they give up 266 yards per game. That's 98th in the country. They're way worse uh, stopping the run. 122nd rush defense to be exact. They give up 219 yards per game. They're 126 in yards per carry. I could continue throwing out these stats and numbers for you. It's probably getting redundant, especially considering all the numbers I'm saying are in the triple digits. So just understand they're horrible. Um, as for players to look out for, they've got a, a cornerback who came in the year with a lot of hype, Caillou Blue Kelly. He's number 17. He went to Bishop Gorman. Uh, coming into the season, he, he was basically the only guy on their defense you think uh, could get drafted. And he's been injured this year, so it's been up and down. He's expected to play on Saturday. Uh, other than that, number three, Levani Dumani. Cool name, decent linebacker. He leads the team in tackles. But honestly, there's just not that many guys in this defense who scare me. So uh, put simply, Notre Dame should have their way with this defense, and it should be a name-your-score kind of game. 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure also that their defensive coordinator has been there for like maybe two decades or something like that. Um, their offensive coordinator, Tavita Pritchard, is a former Stanford quarterback who's been on staff for like nine years. This is just a, a very stubborn staff, and it's it's honestly no wonder that it's fallen off the way it has. So <laughs> their defensive I, – I guess I shouldn't say defensive coordinator because his name is Lance Anderson, and you're right. He's been at Stanford for 16 years. His title is not – uh, defensive coordinator. It is the Willie Shaw director of defense. Ah, maybe <laughs> David Shaw is not going to get fired. <laughs> I guess not. I kind of forgot about that. He should. He still should. I don't care. I, for if they care anything about football, he would have been fired five games ago. But they might not care. From the Notre Dame offense perspective, what are you hoping to see on Saturday? Just a continued performance from Drew Pine from what he did against BYU and, and really, I guess, the second half of the North Carolina game. I see no reason why that can't happen, given what you just said about their defense. Um, and I'd like to see, given that he's healthy, Chris Tyree have a little bit of a bounce-back game. Maybe this is the game where he finally busts one big. Um, other than that, this seems pretty straightforward. Notre Dame's just better. I don't think they should have a lot of issues. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I'd like to see some big plays. Chris Tyree would probably be the best guest to do that. Um, and yeah, last week, I don't know what, I don't know how much we're going to see of Chris Tyree this weekend, if he got hurt yeah, last that could week, be too. but w- yeah. I don't know. We haven't really heard anything. If, if they were to sit him, I think it would be more like precautionary just cause it's Stanford, but who knows? We'll see. I'd like to see the receivers continue to improve. Maybe Lorenzo styles. He's probably due for a big game. So I could see it. Um, all right. Uh, you want to get to some predictions? Sure. You know, I didn't really want to go all the way in here. Um, but if this is truly to be David Shaw's last game, it's got to be a beating. Yeah. We're manifesting. Yeah, I'm going to say 42 to 10, Notre Dame. And Shaw leaves with his tail tucked between his legs, and that's the last we see of him in the Stanford Cardinal red <laughs> and black. Um, like I said, I, I actually honestly could see this being like a pretty boring game where it's like a 34-16 type game, but I'd really like it to be 42-10. All right, I, I'm, I'm thinking along the same vein here. Uh, I'm picking 41 to 20. Just that 20 is probably going to be like a you know second half touchdown, but basically everything we, we, we've been saying is Notre Dame should completely control both sides of the ball. But considering they've been so susceptible to giving up these chunk plays, I guess I'm sort of baking that into my projection here as I take Notre Dame 41 to 20. Uh, I don't think that Stanford is going to move the ball consistently. If they do score, it'll probably be on a big play. But I really hope that's not the case. I hope that. Uh, it's more along the lines of what you predicted. We also have a, a celebrity guest pick here. I texted Stanford Steve earlier today. I said, what's the scouting report on Stanford? And he replied, we suck. ND 38 to 14. So I think Appreciate everyone's the in the same boat. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, before we wrap up here, do you have any more final thoughts on Stanford and, what the, and this game this weekend? You're going, so you're going to be in the crowd again. Yeah, I will be there. Um Looks like it should be decent weather. So, like I said, I wish it was a day game, but should be good. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode of Sons of Saturday Irish. We will be back on Monday of next week to recap the game on Saturday. In the meantime, give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Sons of Sat Irish, and subscribe to the show on YouTube. Or if you're listening to the pos- podcast, subscribe there as well. For Luke and myself, thank you guys for tuning in, and we will talk to you again in a few days. Mm-hmm.